My dear friends, it is so good to be home. Uh, I saw so many folks in the uh, atrium this morning, and they said, Matthew, welcome home. And that's exactly how I feel. I've been away. We were gone two weeks as a family to North Carolina for a little bit of time of uh vacation at the beach. And then last week, I had the great honor of representing Preston Hollow uh, on Lake Michigan at Bayview Conference Center, which is a part of the Chautauqua Network. And so I had the great privilege of preaching on Sunday and then lecturing every single day last week. And I have to tell you, every person that I met, I told them all about you. And then I invited them all here. So when you don't recognize someone in a couple of weeks, just assume they're from Michigan and introduce yourself and then welcome them home just like you welcomed me home. Friends, I am so happy to be here and I'm excited to kick off our sermon series entitled Dear Church, Comma. We are going to, uh, for the next six weeks, explore uh, six of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the early church. And uh, we'll pick up a seventh in the month of October, but we're going to focus on six. I just need to say at the outset of this series, if you would have asked me, Maggie, in my first year of seminary, Matthew, what is your favorite letter from the Apostle Paul? I would have said, well, Maggie, I'm more of a Jesus guy. I'm not really down with Paul. I wasn't down with Paul because I grew up in South Carolina. And growing up in South Carolina, I had heard Paul's words used to harm people and to hurt them and to exclude them, and to draw boundaries, and to say, uh, this is what pure Christianity looked like. And so I got to tell you, I had a lot of baggage with Paul, and so I just wandered right over to Jesus, and I stayed there. Turns out, interpretation is really important. (laughs) Context is paramount. And the more I have dug in to Paul, his life, into the context of these letters, not only have I come to hear the good news of the gospel, I have come to hear the good news of the gospel of inclusion and welcome and belonging and who the Christ is. So for the next uh, six weeks, I can't wait because all of the pastors, me included, are going to jump into this series. But I'm going to take off from three important points. We all need to know this from the outset because we can make some assumptions. I'm going to First assumption I'm making, ready? Um, Original goodness rather than original sin. Now, if you're a lifelong Presbyterian and you're squirming in your seat, that's okay. Let's not let that stand in the way of how we're going to proceed. Got it? So I'm going to start with original goodness rather than original sin because if we go back to the creation poem in Genesis, it's a poem, by the way, not a science textbook, written by the Israelites when they are enslaved in Babylon. See you in September for the story on that. But what we come to know is a God who calls forth creation by the power of God's voice, not through an act of violence. God calls forth creation, and when God looks upon what God has created, God declares it. Good. And then when God, in the original Hebrew, when they, plural noun in the Hebrew, look upon what they have made in humankind, they declare it not good, very good. I'm going to start with original goodness. If we are made in the image of God, then we are made good. That doesn't mean that we're not prone to wander. Not, that doesn't mean that we're not prone to leave the God we love. This is what I'm going to claim, though, my dear friends. None of you in this room is defined by the worst thing that you have ever done in your life. I'm going to say it again because I really want you to hear it. 
no, not one person, not, not any person in this room, is defined wholly by the worst thing that you have ever done in your life. I'm going to start with uh, original goodness rather than original sin. Got it? Number two, I'm going to assume that God, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we can use non-gender language on that if, we're, if we would rather, but I'm going to assume that the God that we follow, worship, and serve is not pagan. And some of you are like, wait a second, I grew up Baptist. I know this. Like, I know my scripture. Some of you are like, I'm a Presbyterian. Is th- Do we really need to go over this? I would say yes. And this is why. Uh, We don't follow a God who is like Zeus, waiting on a cloud with a lightning bolt, watching over your life, ready to pounce on you and to strike you down at any point that you do something terrible. And you're like, yeah, I got it. And I would say, yeah, really? Let's talk to our young people and let's talk to uh, people in young adulthood because sometimes our faith that we pass on through our tradition can sound a little bit like this. Kendall, it will be the only time that I will do anything close to singing on this stage. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout, I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. My dear friends, if we're not careful with our theology, God can sometimes sound like a God that is detached from humankind and or creation. Somewhere perhaps, like in the North Pole, where God only swoops in once or twice a year. Or a God who is watching your every move and writing it all down for all times and all places, and who's going to sweep down and let you know whether or not you're on the naughty or nice list. I am going to assume that we're taking off from the same place, that the God that we worship and serve is not pagan, that the God that we worship and serve is the Holy Trinity, perichoresis, uh, divine dance, divine circle dance between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And the third assumption I'm going to make is uh, Jesus is actually not dead. I know. We're Presbyterians. We know that Christ is alive and at loose in the world. And yet, sometimes we can think, we read the biblical account, that Jesus was here, came to the disciples long ago, he was crucified, dead, and buried, reappeared to the disciples, and one day, if we're really, really, really good, we will, if we're holy enough, go, in the words of my dear friend Nancy Kirby, 90 years old, Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, we will one day go to our reward and meet Christ. I'm going to jump off from the place that we follow the living Christ who is in all through all in all times and places, is as close to us as our very breath. Now, those are the three assumptions that I'm going to jump off in this series. Got it? Cool. Let's go 30,000 feet on Paul really quickly. We need to know that uh, Paul was not always Paul. He was Saul. Saul was a Jewish zealot, a Pharisee who wanted to persecute uh, these Jesus followers. Got it? One day in the year 36, scholars estimate, Saul's walking down the road to Damascus and he encounters the living Christ, not in bodily form, in the form of a bright light and through a voice. Saul then, because of this holy encounter, reorients his entire life to follow this living Christ in the world. Saul becomes Paul and Paul links up with Peter, Petros, the disciple, uh, Petros, Greek, the rock, and Saul and Paul began planting churches everywhere. Turns out when you plant uh, communities of faith, sometimes people begin to disagree. 
turns out there's sometimes conflict. Turns out sometimes people can really feel strongly about everything that they've ever believed, and they begin to question the authority, perhaps, of good news that is broader than they've ever heard before. This is what happens. And so Paul, uh, we have to remember, Paul, Roman citizen, intellectual elite, very, very, very smart. It is why even at Princeton Seminary, when you go and do Greek school, your Greek final exam is never going to be one of the letters that Paul wrote. Because not even at Princeton in Greek school will you ascend to the level of Greek sophistication that Paul writes at. It's why you're going to get one of the Gospels and you're probably going to get the one written at the second grade level, even at Princeton, right? Paul writes to all of these communities. Let me also say this. This is really important. Paul's theology is so shaped not by his tradition, but by this holy encounter that he has. And it is from that experience that drives who he believes the Christ to be in the world. And so Paul begins in the first time in recorded history. Charlie, we don't know, but we believe there may be a scroll in the ground somewhere. But for the first time in recorded history, Paul is telling people the bloodline, your family lineage, doesn't matter. If you're part of the priestly class, doesn't matter. Uh, all people belong because all people are one in Christ. This is the first time in recorded history that we have a religion being pan-tribal. I'm from South Carolina, remember? Uh, the entire population of South Carolina is less than that of the population in the Metroplex. It's why that if you were in the next town over and you walked into a gas station, you looked up, you just assumed everybody was your cousin. And so you would walk over to someone, and if you didn't recognize them, someone may ask you this. They would say, uh, Shelby, they wouldn't know your name, but they would say, who do you belong to? Or they may say, uh, who's your mama? They want to know who you belong to. Paul is saying because of this theology, we are pan-tribal. Who your mama is no longer matters. You, never, you no longer have to show a card to gain entrance. Paul is saying all people belong. This puts him at odds with the tribal religions of the time. And also puts him at odds with the Roman Empire, who ruled off of these tribes, pitting one another against. Uh, so all they had to do was stoke the fire between tribes, and then they got to stand over here, and they thought, oh, if they're fighting it out, they can't fight us. So Paul, in the year 53, pins a letter to the Galatians. And now that we know all of that, I want us to hear what he says about this unity in Christ. And then I want us to talk about his invitation, not only to those in Galatia, but those to us here and now. So if we know about this being the first religion that is pan-tribal, we hear these words in a different way. From uh, the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, Paul says, um, there is no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to that promise. Here's the problem. 
that revolutionary good news sounds really good to new followers. But, my dear friends, there were those, uh, we call them the Judaizers, that's what scholars call them, come in behind Paul, and they say, actually, there are certain rituals that you still have to complete in order to be worthy and to get into that line of grace, mercy, and love. The Judaizers come in behind Paul and they begin to sow uh, seeds of doubt and mistrust. And they say, actually, uh, there are rituals uh, like circumcision. You have to be circumcised in order for this grace to be sure that it applies to you. Paul's not very happy about this. Paul says, uh, do you know sometimes, friends, uh, our rituals, while they're good, and our spiritual practices, while they're good, and our sacraments, while they are good, if we worship them alone, if we worship the structures, we can still be void of the essence or the spirit that those structures or practices are supposed to point to. We are Presbyterians. We have processes. Okay, uh, I was in Montreat. I was in charge of uh, the worship and the keynotes, uh, the sermons and the lectures. I was in seminary, just finished my second year of seminary. I had just finished my polity uh, class. I go to Montreat, uh, the Super Bowl for Presbyterian youth. I went there for the summer. I am uh, in worship one night. Cleo LaRue, Dr. LaRue from Princeton Seminary, literally just preached the roof off this auditorium. I mean, I've never seen young people stand and give a standing ovation that lasted like minutes to a preacher in my entire life. The roof was off this place. When everyone finally sat down, there were five teenage boys that came sprinting down the center aisle, and they ran up to Dr. LaRue, who was sitting right over in the corner, and he looked at me and went, and I thought, oh, goodness, what's going on? So these five teenage boys run down to me, and they say these words. We want to be baptized tonight. We want to give our lives to Christ. We have encountered the living God in this place. Be nice to me. I had just finished polity. <laughs> and I said to them, well, boys, you know, um, as Presbyterians, we believe baptism is a uh, a relationship and a commitment between the community and the person being baptized. Do you hear it now? And they said, no, 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 but we have had a transformational experience and encounter with the divine. We want to be baptized tonight. And I said, uh, guys, um, after the worship service tonight, get your youth group leader to come and we'll come up with a plan for how to get you baptized. You hear it, right? Sometimes we can worship the form and totally miss the essence. You could be born and bred Presbyterian all of your days, and I think we can all agree we should have baptized those guys. Like, what are we doing? We baptize those guys. And we figure out the form stuff later. Paul is um, saying... To those in Galatia, if we are going to worship the ritual of circumcision, we are worshiping a process more than recognizing that this ritual points us to the full expression of the living Christ. 
Paul is saying, if rituals stand in our way and we think that we have to use them to ascend, then perhaps we've gotten faith wrong. I'm going to quote Richard Rohr here. Richard Rohr says, uh, faith is not a path of ascent. Faith is a path of descent, Uh, just like these stairs. We can sometimes think that we've got to come to know Christ. We've got to acknowledge it, and then we take a step up. And then we go and we do devotions in our home every day, and then we step up, and then we pray every day, and then we step up, and then we come to the table. And then one day, if we're really, really lucky and we've played by all the rules, then our lives will count as being holy enough to be claimed by God. Paul is saying that is actually a false premise. Uh, Faith is not a path of ascent. Uh, Faith is a path of descent. What Paul is saying is the living Christ, the one that encountered me on the Damascus road, is as close to you as your very breath. And so a path of faith is descending into what? Into the spirit of God in whom you worship, serve, and who is, is close to you right now. Yeah, 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 Matthew. But what does that look like? I want to invite us to hear Paul's words in a different way because Because sometimes if we misquote Paul, we think a path of descent is for a future reward instead of experiencing the living Christ here and now and coming to know what it actually means to live, which is much more powerful, my dear friends, if we know the invitation to orient our lives towards Christ, descend into spirit, into what I call true self. So listen, uh, when we get there, Thomas, we'll put 22 up. But listen, this is what Paul says. Paul, Paul says, we know what it looks like to descend into spirit because our lives bear fruit. But we also know what it looks like if we live out of false self and ego, shadow self, uh, sin. So we're going to hear the word flesh here, and every time we hear flesh, I want us to think false self, shadow self, sin. Got it? So Paul says this, live by the Spirit, and I say, do not gratify the desires of your ego, your false self, your flesh. For what your ego, your shadow self desires is opposed to the Spirit And what the Spirit desires is opposed to your shadow self. For these are opposed to each other and prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh, of the ego, are, they're obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, Strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousal. And I love this. And things like these. What didn't Paul cover, by the way? Like, did we need and things like these? Thanks, Paul. We got it. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Think about this. Those of If we orient our lives towards shadow self, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the question. If we orient our lives 
towards ego will we look up and feel like we are living a full life? Will we look up and look at a life whose byproducts are that and feel like we are rooted in the Spirit? Of course not. Paul then says, and let's put this one up, Thomas. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the ego, shadow self, with its passions and desires. For if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, or envying one another. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, I'm not saying that rituals and sacraments or spiritual disciplines aren't needed to orient our lives into what it means to descend into the depths of the Spirit. But what I am saying is, if we void those of the Spirit that they point to, then we will be a people who spend more time working on the container of our faith than seeking to be transformed by the essence that the container seeks to point to. A couple years ago, here's an example. I'll close with this. A couple years ago, Sarah Ruffner and I are invited to go back to South Carolina for a summer wedding. One of our closest friends from Atlanta, Lauren, was marrying her beloved, Dan. Lauren from Darlington, South Carolina. She was getting married on a plantation south of Florence, South Carolina, in a town called Lynchburg. I'm going to repeat that to make sure we all heard that. Lauren's getting married to her beloved Dan in a town south of Florence at a plantation in the town of Lynchburg. To quote Pat Conroy, the South's got a lot wrong with it. It's permanent press and it don't wash out. We pull in to the plantation, beautiful. You know, one of those uh, flower and ribbon arrangements to mark the entrance. We get in, we park the car, we get out of the car, and uh, someone greets us with a basket. The basket is filled with mosquito spray. So we grab one and we spray down. We then go to where the ceremony is going to happen. Chairs have been set up just like this, except the chairs are facing a giant old oak tree on a plantation in Lynchburg, South Carolina. The usher says to us, would you like to go uh, groom's side or bride's side? And we said, oh, uh, we're here on the bride's side. And they said, right with us. And the groom takes Sarah, and I follow behind, you know, like you do. And they seat us, and we sit down with almost the entire state of South Carolina. How do I know? Because all the men are in seersucker or poplin suits, no socks with their shoes, Charlie. All the women are in sun hats and sundresses. And we're all getting settled in. 
and we look up. And across the aisle are people not from South Carolina. I didn't tell you Lauren was marrying Dan, her beloved, who was from Nairobi, Kenya. And so across the aisle are Kenyans, his family members, dressed in native garb, standing underneath an oak tree on a plantation in Lynchburg, South Carolina. And the minister comes out and Dan walks and he is beaming. Lauren gets to the end of the aisle with her, in her words, her daddy. And when she gets there with her daddy, Dan begins to weep. And her father walks her to the front. And there, underneath that oak tree, Dan and Lauren vow to a love that is greater than their own. That they want to orient their lives to the ways of Jesus. They make these vows. And we begin to weep. And then the minister comes to the table. I didn't even recognize there was a table up there. It was tiny. He came to the table and he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it. And then he uh, poured the cup and then he invited everyone to come forward for communion. This was uh, pre-COVID. So we all get in a line. Uh, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in the cup, and then we get that from the minister. And then Dan and Lauren are standing right here. And for the next hour, as everyone gets communion, they hug Dan and Lauren. All these people from South Carolina and all these people from Kenya. And they are weeping, and Dan and Lauren are just beaming, and we go back to our seats, and we could see then what we couldn't see before. There was actually no groom's side, and there was actually no bride's side. There actually wasn't a group of people from South Carolina and the people from Kenya. We could see our unity in Christ and we could come to that table, and that table reoriented us. Not that that table was holy, but every table that we ever gather around is the very place where we come to experience the Spirit of God. It was at that table that we could see that night that we were one in Christ, and the shrimp and grits and the pulled pork that we were going to eat was the holy feast of the people of God. That wedding pointed at us towards the Christ that is in all and through all. And that is Paul's invitation not only to us at a wedding, but it's our invitation every single day of our lives. Friends, the invitation is the path of descent to descend into spirit that is as close to you as your very breath. For when we seek to orient our ways to the ways of Christ, we will bear much fruit, not as an absolute, but as a way of knowing that this is the path of faith. That's Paul's invitation to those in Galatia. May you hear that invitation for you.
and for all of us. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us and mold us. Fill us and use us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Amen.